If we open your Bibles this morning to uh, the book of Revelation chapter 9, and also would you uh, keep uh, open to Psalm 51. We're going we're gonna to read Revelation 9 first, then we're going to turn to Psalm 51. The title of the message today is called Remembering Repentance. Um, and as we read the text this morning, um, especially in Revelation, let's not get overly focused on all of the amazing and somewhat frightening imagery of our verses in Revelation. Instead, I would love to ask us to ensure that we allow the Lord to highlight the pastoral point of this text. There's a pastoral point to this text. Remember, we believe that God gave us the book of Revelation to pastor your hearts more than prophesy to your hearts. What is the fallen condition in the text that Jesus has come to cure? What is the intended redemptive effect of the passage? And I want to suggest that the point of the passage is the importance of repentance. And so, would you join with me? And we're going gonna, gonna to do something a little bit different. Uh, they always teach pastors not to do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, it's, this is really a word to parents and to their children. Um, I've talked to several people uh, from last week, and, and I try to reach out to our kids. And uh, how are they hearing what we're teaching and preaching? And some of them said that it was kind of scary, Pastor Billy. Um, so I'm going to read to a certain point, and then I just want to address the children for just a second, if I could. So that's the reasoning behind this. So Revelation chapter 9, we're going to begin in verse 13. And then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the, the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and, and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads and by means of them they wound. If you recall, that's where I'm going to just pause for a minute. If you recall, this passage is not directed at Christians. When the angel comes to declare the woe, 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 this passage is for those who are rejecting Jesus Christ and his loving offer of salvation. That's who this passage is for. And so that's what I want to talk to our kids. You guys, the biggest thing that any human should ever be afraid of is sin and the judgment that sin deserves. And the only other thing that you should be afraid of 
is Satan. And I have really great news for you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you never have to be afraid of sin and judgment ever again. And you never have to be afraid of Satan. And God will give us strength to fight against sin and to fight against Satan. But you don't have to be afraid. Okay. So now let's pick up the rest of the verse. And moms and dads, if you want Alan or Hugh or I to just play a complimentary role in the work you're doing as parents, come alongside you in terms of, of tough passages of scripture that our kids are hearing, if you'd just like just somebody to come alongside and encourage you, we'd, we'd love to do that. Okay, back to the text. Now beginning in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And now with the repentance in mind, let's turn to Psalm 51. Beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Oh, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. Oh, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we come before you and we just, we ask that the intended redemptive effect of these passages of scripture would have their way in our hearts today. Lord, we want to confess really from the very beginning 
that we can be a people who can be very forgetful about the importance of repentance. Would you help us better understand it this morning? Better understand the need of it? Better understand the value of it? And better understand the grace underneath it all to change our hearts and fill us with joy and focus our mission on Jesus and making disciples of every people group on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, I, I have two cute, 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 cute granddaughters. Tatum is two. Uh, Adeline turns one this month, so we're going to have a one-year-old granddaughter. We're going to go celebrate her next week, next Saturday. When I, when I go to visit my grandgirls, um, Tatum loves to play kitchen with me. And so we go into the, to her bedroom, and there she has her kitchen things, and we sit down on the floor, and she makes Papa some food. And on one of our most recent visits, she, she comes up and she puts the stuff and she gives me a cup and, and I'm just about to drink out of the cup. I'm just about, just about to put it up to my mouth and she grabs it and pulls it away. And I looked at her. I said, Tatum, Marie, what, what are you doing? That was Papa's cup and I was just about to have a drink. And Tatum looks at me and she just goes, Sorry. And then, but she doesn't give me back the cup. And she just keeps it. And then she looks at me. She gets up and she runs down the hallway laughing. <laughs> chase me, Papa, chase me. So here I go, chasing you, Papa. Oh, my goodness. But I want to say to her, Tatum, your cuteness cannot conquer your sin. <laughs> and, and, but isn't that so much? That when, whenever she, she's not, that's not the only time she's given me this, the cutest I'm sorry you'll ever hear, but there's no hint of repentance in it at all, right? I mean, it's just, I'm sorry. And the Lord's just showing me so much about my own heart and how often I do that to the Lord. Sorry. And then I go on thinking that the apology was enough. But have you ever noticed an apology by itself never changes your heart? How many times have you apologized to your spouse and your spouse has heard it a bazillion times? And it gets wearying because I'm sorry without a, a change. It's just wearying, isn't it? Well, that's, that's what I think the Lord wants to do in our hearts today. Let me, let me ask you this. I had that experience just even as a person coming to the Lord. I had not been taught well. I had not heard the, the full gospel preached uh, that would include the message of repentance. And, and many of you know I had a, a really rough upbringing. My mom and dad just were at war with each other in marriage. Black eyes, knives thrown, irons trying to burn flesh and... Just lots of stuff. And uh, so when I heard about Jesus, I heard that he'd be a good friend. He'd be a lover. He'd be very kind to me. And of course he is. But no one ever talked about my sin. And so I said, well, gee, this is, that sounds great. Somebody will come and love you just the way you are. And that, that's, that's, all, that's awesome. And, and so I prayed a prayer. Oh, Jesus, please, I need a friend. Please come into my heart and please come be my friend. And oh, my goodness, does the Lord want to be your friend? Yes, of course he does. 
But in order to become our friend, doesn't he first have to deal with our sin? And so I went and I had a little bit of a six-month honeymoon, so to speak, with God where it's just, oh, this is just so great and all of this kind of stuff. I graduate from my senior year in high school, go down to New Mexico State, and my idol got destroyed. My idol was baseball, and I tried out for New Mexico State's baseball team. I acted like I couldn't. I won the most valuable player in high school. It looked like I never played baseball when I tried out at New Mexico State. And as my idol betrayed me, I dove into drugs and alcohol like crazy. A friend of mine went home and saw my dad, and my dad loved me, I know, very dearly and deeply. And, and I was in the midst of this, this struggle of my soul. I was, I was just diving deeper into an emptiness and purposelessness and guilty conscience and didn't know what to do with it. And so my friend goes and sees my dad. My dad says, hey, listen, I want to send a care package back to Billy. Uh, and you guys, you know, and this is what he tells my friend. Because I know when you get to party and you get the munchies. Well, if any of you who had some background in alcohol and drugs, you know, munchies doesn't just mean what munchies means at maybe the ballpark. <laughs> I'm going to go get some munchies. Munchies is because you've been partying so hard that you're just ravenous about eating. Well, my friend, that's how my friend heard it. Uh-oh, Billy's dad is talking about the munchies. I need to lie to him to protect him from finding out the life that Billy's leading. So he's, oh, Mr. Ray's, Mr. Ray's. You know, Billy doesn't do those kind of things. Well, now he's making it worse, right? And my dad says, what kind of things? And, and my friend says, oh, you know, Billy doesn't get into drinking and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And, and my dad, he says, my, that side of my family's Arabic. And my dad has eyes the size of a camel. And he says, your dad looked at me with those camel eyes. He looks right through me and he says, I know my son would never live that way. Well, he comes back and he tells me this story. And it breaks my heart. All my dad ever did was love me. All he ever did was love me. And this is how I'm living in light of his love. So I went to bed that night, broken heart, all the jagged pieces had fallen into my stomach. I felt like I was in, just, I was in a fetal position. My friend, my, my buddy Robert probably thought I was going crazy because I'm out loud in my bedroom. I'm just, I'm just almost screaming, Dad, I'm sorry! Dad, I'm sorry. Oh, please forgive me, Dad. And then just an act of sovereign grace out of my mouth. I'm not thinking about God until this. Oh, Father, I'm sorry. And it's like a light turned on. And the darkness seemed to just fly away. And I'm understanding that the biggest need I had wasn't just for my unhappy childhood to be taken away. It was for my sin to be taken away. That's what I most needed. And I'm discovering that's what Jesus came to do. And my, I recognized I was offending God and God alone. And all God ever did was love me. And this is the way I'm living? in spite of this perfect love that he's been offering me. And wouldn't you know it, that with that, now that's not a sorry, is it? That's now coming into what we're going to study today called repentance. And wouldn't you know it, 
my life changed dramatically by God's grace after repentance took hold. So I want to I go into this this morning um, to say that one of the most distinguishing marks of God's grace in a Christian's life is not, is one of the most distinguishing marks of grace in a Christian's life is not merely love. Certainly that's one of the, what's the mark of a Christian? They'll know we're Christians by our, by our love, right? Certainly. But I want to argue this morning that people should also know we're Christians by our repentance. By our repentance. Isn't that what our text showed us this morning? That's what our text showed us this morning. There was, of all the things that could have been said at the end of chapter 9, God focuses on one thing. They didn't repent. I think this is one of the marks, distinguishing marks, of the grace of God at work in a Christian's life. In fact, not only this text, but many others show us that repentance is a distinguishing mark that separates a believer from an unbeliever. We've seen in, in the letters to the seven churches, again and again and again, repentance was highlighted to the churches, to the Christians. It's one of the sweetest graces that God has given us. Think about this in terms of the end times, and we've been talking about all that. One of the sweetest graces that God has given us to overcome sin and Satan and suffering and stay true to gospel mission as we live in and through the end times is repentance. Repentance was specifically highlighted for the churches. We... we, we, we do a, do a word search when you get a chance of the word repent or repentance and you'll be amazed how many times it comes out in scripture. Repentance is a means of grace to change us. Repentance is a means of grace to change our relationships. Did you know that divorce exists because repentance doesn't? Church splits exist because repentance doesn't. I can tell you're a Christian by your repentance. So our main point this morning is this. Of all the blessings given to a Christian, repentance is one. It's not the only one, but it's one that most distinguishes a believer from an unbeliever and is an ongoing means of grace whereby God delivers us from spiritual danger and matures us for ministry and mission. The first point is easy. to, to We've already really kind of highlighted it in verses 20 and 21. Even with all the suffering and deception and death and judgment and demonic activity that's going on, isn't it amazing that there's still this group of people who with, in spite of all the evidence, refuse to repent. They don't repent from their works, building their own empires, their own self-sufficiency, their own self-exaltation. They, they don't give up worshiping their idols. They continue on with immorality, murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, theft. So let me kind of throw a little nugget at you. One of my concerns as a pastor, as I look at this text, it is is that it is very likely that there are unbelieving church attenders in this group. 
See, we have a tendency to think of the unrepentant as just the drug dealer or the pimp. Do you know there are unrepentant church attenders? You might think I'm reading my own opinions into the text, but I have a biblical reason for saying that. Matthew 13, Jesus tells us that the wheat and the tares will grow up together until he comes again for the final harvest. I'm so thankful that I've been blessed to know many of you, Alan and Hugh, and as as elders, we're so blessed to know many of you. And we pray that we don't believe this would be as true here, but I think across the board in the United States, I think there are many, many church attenders who have never repented and don't know Jesus Christ savingly. And I think they'll be in this number if they don't repent. William Booth, this is pretty, pretty uh, grabbing. He said this, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. So what's the purpose of this text beyond being reminded how dead and blind and deaf and rock hard the unbeliever's heart is to Christ? Well, remember, God is pastoring our hearts to want to renew us and give us a fresh sense of rejoicing and hope and ministry and future because of this grace and gift of repentance. But, but this, at least, if nothing else, it should compel our evangelism because the only hope for a hard-hearted unbeliever to repent toward God and turn in faith to Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel has got to be more frequently on our lips. It's got to be more frequently the abundance of our hearts. But second, if the unbeliever is recorded as constantly living in a state of unrepentance, then isn't it also saying that the believer is to be constantly living in a state of repentance? Because it's a distinguishing mark that separates the believer from the unbeliever. Not just how the believer got in, but how the believer lives. So I just, listen, what would repentance, what would be a revival of repentance? What would it do in marriages in this room? What would a revival of repentance do in our families? What would a revival of repentance do in some of the awkward relational things that can happen in a local church? It's exciting to think about how God would bless ongoing lifestyles of repentance. So let's define repentance. What repentance is not. It's not self-loathing. It's not some sort of self-hatred. It's not telling yourself just, oh, what an awful person I am. I I can do that. I don't know if you do that. There are just times I'm getting ready or I can look in the mirror or I can think of something I did, a sermon I preached, a counseling thing I did, a way I treated my precious wife. Uh, uh, Just so many things and I can just go, oh, you're such a jerk. Why am I such a jerk? And somehow I think there's this part of me that thinks 
Somehow this is going to merit favor with God. Somehow this is going to, this is going to maybe, maybe if I feel bad enough, maybe then mercy would come. Maybe then grace could come. Maybe, maybe I'd change if I could just feel bad enough. That's not what repentance is. It's not self-loathing. It's not self-hatred. It's not self-atonement. Where if you, if you feel guilty enough for what you've done, that's going to be the key to restore favor with God or with people. It's not talking about regret. Regret's feeling bad about the consequences of your actions without any concern for the offense you committed against the person. Re- re- regret is a very self-centered if you want to, if you, a misunderstanding of repentance, well, let's say it's a very self-centered form of repentance. It has nothing to do that you, you dishonored this person. It has everything to do with how I look. And so often that's, that's how we handle these kind of things. Thomas Watson, you know, says many think that they repent when it's not the offense, but the penalty that tr- troubles them. Feeling ashamed is not repentance. These things can, can certainly have a part in repentance, but by itself, that's not repentance. It's not sadness because of how it makes you look in front of other people. Apologizing by itself is not necessarily repentance, especially since so many of our apologies sound like this. I'm sorry if you got hurt. Well, do you see what you're doing with that? I pray, God, please, could you zip our lips from now on that none of that baloney would come out of our mouths. You know what essentially saying is, I'm sorry, but none of this would have happened if you wouldn't be so sensitive. Yeah. Boy, doesn't that bring just unity to a relationship? All of the above are just selfish and self-righteous imitations of repentance, but what is repentance? Well, this is in your notes. This is just taking a conglomeration of different things, but repentance is a grace from God, first of all. It's not a work, it's a grace God gives us that leads to the salvation of the sinner and the sanctification of the saint. It's a God-centered change of mind. God-centered change of beliefs, even of affections and choices that progressively transforms the character and the behavior of a Christian. Simply, you could say it's a change of mind and behavior. We just combed it out a little bit more there. Biblical repentance is God-centered because it desires that God get glory in my confession. It desires that God get praised in my desire to experience his mercy as more satisfying than the sins I've been tiptoeing in and trying to find some satisfaction in. It's a God-centered view of life. We are not sorry for the consequences of sin, but for the sin itself. That it displeased and dishonored the one who loved us. That's what happened when it wasn't just about what sin was doing to me in terms of the consequences. When I, when I realized how I was living in light of my dad's love, it changed everything. Because then you're going to see it in Psalm 51. It was against my dad that I was sinning. And that's how the Lord opened my eyes 
to see there's something bigger here. It's against the Lord who loves you dearly. That's who you've been offending. That's who you've been offending. So repentance is a changed mind. It's a changed mind about yourself. Remember the rich young ruler, and he's saying, how do I be saved? And Jesus, uh, he, first he called Jesus good, and Jesus said, hey, well, hang on there. Let me, let's, let's get something straight. There's only one good. And so he goes and he gives the law. And I don't know if you've let, read that passage and gone, went, gosh, did Jesus forget about justification by faith? I mean, what, what's, what, what's going on here? Is it, is it salvation by law? And, and remember what he said. So Jesus lists off a few commandments, and then the guy says, oh, I've done that. He's defining his goodness out of his own works. You see, he's not, he doesn't seem self as sinful. I'm a, good, I'm a good works kind of guy. And the Lord had to bring him to a place that's, that even your good works are like filthy rags and deserve judgment too. Because the ultimate beneficiary of your good works is you. It's not the glory of God. It's not the good and growth of others. A changed mind about what you believe. That satisfaction and happiness can only be found in God and not in people or things. It's a changed mind about your sin from loving it to hating it and fighting against it. It's a changed mind about God's holiness and the horrible offense that we've committed against God and the judgment, the right judgment that those sins deserve. It's a changed mind about the price Christ paid for our sins. He did that for me. Are you kidding? That's amazing love. It's a changed set of affections. That's where the godly sorrow comes in. Because it's not just about me. It's about him. And I hate that I have despised and offended the only one who perfectly loves me. That's where the godly sorrow comes in. And it's a changed set of choices. It brings humility, a denial of self, a willingness to take up your cross, to follow the Lord. It brings a love of the Lord. It brings, it brings in a love of neighbor. It brings in a passion for the mission of making disciples. It's amazing what repentance does about how you choose to live. J.C. Ryle put it this way. These are in your notes. True repentance is no light matter. It's a thorough change of heart about sin. It's a change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation, in heartfelt confession before the throne of grace, in a complete breaking off from sinful habits, and in an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving grace. Really, it's faith and repentance are the two sides of the same coin. It's all given by God's grace. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, another proof of the conquest of a soul for Christ will be found in a real change of life. If the man doesn't live differently from what he did before, both at home and abroad, his repentance needs to be repented of. And his conversion is a fiction. Well, when should repentance be practiced? I would argue that the third point, it's a daily discipline. Martin Luther put it this way when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the wall. Above it all, he put this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The more we understand our fallen heart, the more you're going to recognize he got it right. He got it right. 
So let's, let's look at this a little bit more specifically. So repent when times are bad. Would you turn to Luke? You know, a lot of times I put the passages there and I just thought, we probably should have you actually turn around and look through your Bible sometimes in church. Um, so the book of Luke, chapter 13, we should be repenting whenever there's tragedy, whenever there's crisis, because it will point to something about our hearts. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all of the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's Jesus getting at here? When good or bad things happen to us, we, we tend to immediately either look inward without the lens of Scripture or we look outward. We, we tend to immediately compare ourselves to others. Am I worse than other people uh, when I do wrong and, and, and things like this is happening? Or I am, am I better than other people when I do right? What's Jesus saying? Were these people who died worse than others? No. Ever, this is essentially shorthand. Jesus essentially saying... Every one of us deserves a tower to fall on us. That's just what our sin is like. It deserves a righteous judgment. And, and what have we been learning about the end times? That there are already judgments falling upon the earth in its fallenness. God has given our, our world over to futility. And so these crises, these judgments happen to remind us how much I need the Lord. How, de how deserving I am of judgment. And that thanks be to God, I am a sinner saved by grace. That's what's supposed to happen when things, when bad things happen, tragedies and judgments. They should lead us back to repentance, a changed mind about God and his mercy and his grace and about the ministry and mission of a believer. It helps us remember who we are. It remember, we, we remember our mission. Well, how about not just times are bad? How many of us repent when times are good? And this one, you may be going, oh man, you're getting off the rocker here, Billy. Well, look at Romans 2.4. Romans 2.4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Huh. Go figure. When towers aren't falling on you. <laughs> I talked to a lady the other day and she said, that, she said like this, the Lord gives and takes away. And when I hear, think of that verse, oh, this is terrible. I tend to focus on the takeaway part. I tend to focus on, yeah, well, the Lord has every right to take things away. This is not what she said. She said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But mostly he gives. That is so true. That is so true. Is God's kindness leading you to a constantly renewing of your mind? 
Or do we treat God's kindness with contempt and that it's a subtle way to think, well, I, I, I deserve this. Have you guys ever had this thought? It's about time. It's about time. It's about time I'm getting recognized for my achievements. It's about time I'm getting appreciated about, around this house. Even the blessings of God can reveal something about our hearts, can't they? And so we need to turn to the Lord and remember that all of God's kindness comes as undeserved kindness and grace. And it reminds us of who we are, sinners saved by grace. It reminds us so we can say, oh Lord, I'm not worthy of this kindness. You are so wonderful to give it. And now God, help me to celebrate it without letting it become an idol. How many times do we do that? We just kind of grab onto things and, oh, I, this is what I most needed. This is what I most needed. And, and then we've just kind of turned it into an idol. Oh, listen, if you experience bad things without repentance, if you experience good things without repentance, it's just going to lead to a progressive hardening of your heart. It's going to set you adrift in your walk with Christ. It's going to make you more vulnerable to sinful compromise and satanic attack. Repentance ensures that you can experience trials, tribulations, joys, and pleasures without them crushing you or without idolizing them as substitute saviors. John Newton, just the coolest quote, he said, the gospel makes the worst times bearable and the best times leavable. Is that a cool thought? I'll be honest with you, when I get to spend time with my grandgirls, and then in July, grandson is going to be born. I'm not super happy about leaving Dallas. <laughs> I'm not super happy. Now, I, ex I get excited about coming to back, be back with my church family. But it's because I tend to attach some idolatry, even to something as wonderful as grandgirls, that somehow they're the key to lasting happiness in my life. The gospel makes hard times bearable and the best times leavable. Enjoying them and then being able to move on in life and mission for Jesus without them owning us. So whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, every adversity, every crisis, every judgment is an opportunity to repent. Every kindness from God is an opportunity to repent. Uh, and, and to refuse to trust in ourselves or our riches or our works or in other people. And to press in closer to his heart and to trust and obey Jesus. And of course, where we understand repentance more pointedly is, is we repent when we're convicted of sin. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul had uh, sent a word of correction to this church and uh, they had been grieved by it. They'd been convicted of sin. That's kind of the background of this. So starting in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief produces something. It produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. So he's highlighting there the importance of repentance when we're convicted of sin and how it cuts so deeply to the heart that it will ultimately change our actions. And so now let's look at repentance demonstrated. And that's in Psalm 51. So if you'll turn back to Psalm 51. You know, the setting for this is David's sin with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah. That's the background of it. David had been hardening. David did not repent right away. He, he, he tried to manage his sin. Any, any sin managers here besides me? He tried to cover his sin. So you remember what he did. He, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And some, some commentators think it was, it was worse than just adultery. He was, it was an abuse of power. There were just some other things that could be attached to that that are not attractive at all. Instead of repenting, he tries to cover it up. Joab, get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, off from the battle. From, uh, bring him back. Bring him back to the, to the, the uh, palace. Bring him back to my place. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. It was one of the men closest to David. So I want you to be thinking about what he's about to do here. So he says, Uriah, hey, welcome home. Listen, you've, you've, you've been doing well. You fought well. Go and enjoy. Go be home with your wife. Go enjoy the pleasures of marriage. Because you see what he's doing. There's no DNA testing. So if I can just get, get Uriah to go in and, and have relations with his wife, then that, I'm, I'm free, and, free and clean, right? Because it, she, it, she's been discovered to be pregnant. Uriah refused. And David gets him drunk. This is terrible, isn't it? David gets him drunk because certainly a drunk man is going to go back home and enjoy relations with his wife. Uriah refused. One writer put it this way. Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. He still doesn't do it. So he calls Joab. Joab, send Uriah back to the battle. But this time, put him in the place where the battle is the worst. He didn't say this, but the the point would be that there's really no hope that he could come out alive. Murder. He just essentially made a contract for his murder. And David didn't repent from all that. You know, I, I was wondering as I was studying, I wonder if there was any point where David got a glimpse of the gospel and what Uriah had done. Here's a man, he comes, he wants to serve. He's innocent. The, the, the king sends him away. He essentially dies because of David's sin. He's just getting a foreshadowing, isn't he, of Jesus. Uriah was innocent, and David tried to cover his guilt with Uriah's death. 
Uriah just died as an innocent man to cover the sins of guilty David. Well, thankfully, David didn't stay unrepentant. Um, David became really one of the, the greatest examples of repentance. Hopefully this is a hope to all of us. Because I don't know too many of us who are adulterers and even worse and murderers. And God restored and renewed and forgave this man. Um, in Christian Counseling Education Foundation, David Covington wrote a, a premier article. It's about 19 pages. Let me know if you'd want to see it. But he, he likens repentance to a V, kind of, kind of a V for victory. And repentance, what, what you can see is as we go through Psalm 51, repentance goes from the behavior down to the heart. And then from the heart to a restored life and purpose and mission and ministry. It's a, it's a beautiful way to see Psalm 51. So the first thing to remember is that David remembers God's covenant promise to be merciful in Christ. And Alan read the passage. I, I, I didn't tell Alan that I had Exodus 34 as a cross-reference today. But that's what the, the, David knew, that God showed Moses that he was a merciful God, steadfast love God, abounding in mercy. And so David cries out for mercy. That's the first thing you have to be convinced of, that, that you're not saying, God, have mercy on me, wondering if he's going to. No, God, mer have mercy on me because that is your very character and essence. Have mercy on me because Christ took my place upon the cross. He received judgment so I could receive mercy. Oh, Christ, have mercy on me. That's the starting point. That's the goodness of God that leads us into repentance. God is committed to saving us from what we deserve. He's committed to that. Verses 2 through 4, he gets very specific and accountable when confessing sin. We would do well to learn from this. We're very general confessors. And general confessions, they don't lead to changed hearts. You ever notice that? The more specific you understand your sin and its impact, you're actually more focused on the change that needs to come. So he uses the word transgression. That means a willing, knowledgeable breaking of God's commands. He uses the word iniquity. And this word is moral uncleanness. This is getting a little bit more to the heart of the matter. It says, I still have a fleshly nature, I, 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 but I'm, I'm sinning because I'm a sinner. I, I don't just need a change of behavior. I need a change of heart. So he uses transgression. He uses iniquity. And he uses the word sin. Sin is not just missing the mark as though you're, you're, you have a bow and arrow and you're just off the target. You know, a lot of times that's how it's described. It's missing the target. The arrow doesn't even get close. The arrow doesn't even reach the target. There's nothing in us, in ourselves, that can live a righteous life without Christ living in us and giving us the power for obedience. So he uses these three uh, unique expressions. And then it comes down to this, verse 4. Um, and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Well, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Didn't he sin against Uriah? Yeah. Didn't he sin against the entire nation of Israel in being a horrible example of, of a king? The king was supposed to be an example of the king of kings. So he's, he's sinned against the whole nation. But now David gets it. 
No, it's against you and you alone have I sinned. That's the only way that sin becomes defined. And that's where godly sorrow is born. Until we know that our sin is first and foremost against God, you guys, we will not adequately or sufficiently respond to the sins we've committed against others. We'll never be sorry enough. We'll shift the blame toward them. We'll justify our own sins. And David is so accountable. David gets it so much that he says, God, you have every right to just judge me and punish me. You have every right to do that. That's where you know that conviction is at work in the human heart. You guys, I say all this because I'm, I'm concerned that there's still this, this subtle smuggling of our own goodness. Somehow I have to find some goodness in me that's apart from Christ giving me it. There's something good in me. And, and really, my sins are just a good person making bad choices. That's not what it's about. You're a bad person making bad choices. You're a sinful person making sinful choices. There's a heart problem that needs to be changed. And so that's, that's this V. You're coming down to get to the heart. He's acknowledging that he can't stop there. If David just stops with, I've, I've transgressed or I've sinned, he's no better than Tatum. It's just a sorry without ever changing. I mean, be, be honest. How many of us have parts of our hearts that we are so sick of? There are sins that are gripping us that, we're, that we tend to make ourselves slaves to. Well, maybe it's because we've done the I'm sorry without ever saying, God, do heart surgery on me. Go to the core problem. Go to the deepest part of me and bring the change I need. Well, great news. Verses 5 and 6. He, he's confessing, I'm a sinner at the core of my heart. Verse 5, he's tracing the, his sin to its source. He, he says, I'm, a, I, I'm not essentially good and making bad decisions. I was conceived in sin. And he's not talking about his parents. He's talking about the, the impact of Adam's life on all of humanity. I have a bad heart. But then verse 6, it's, it's God telling him, and I can change your heart. I can change your inward being. I can change you in the secret part of your heart. Verses 7 through 9, so he's asking for forgiveness. And he's remembering what we would remember through a New Testament lens is that Jesus died for these sins too. So the sins that we confess that we too often repeat, isn't it great that Jesus died for every one of them? It doesn't matter how many times we've committed them. He were, all of them were accounted for and punished on the Son of God. So that's where you see the hyssop. Cleanse me with hyssop. That was the, 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 um, the, the plant or the bush that, you, that put the blood of the innocent sacrifice, sacrificial lamb over the doorposts of Israel. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And then, it's, it's this is where it's not this self-loathing or self-atoning. Then he begins to sense that repentance is the pathway for renewal. Repentance is the pathway for rejoicing and refreshing. And he says, oh Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Change my heart, oh God. Create in me a clean heart. 
He's essentially, it's the same words used for, for in Genesis about the creation of the world. God, do what only you can do. I've tried to change myself, and I'm like a leopard that can't change its spots. God, do what only you can do. Would you change my heart? Give me a, cre- give me a creative miracle or a recreated miracle. You, you created the world out of nothing. God, would you take me out of the enmity that I was as a sinner and give me a Christ-like heart? Renew a willing spirit in me. Give me a heart that wills and works for your good pleasure. Guys, repentance is not going from bad works to good works. It's just so easy to think, okay, I did bad, I need to do better. No, no, no. It's not about doing. It's about depending on the work that Jesus did for you. It's delighting in what Jesus has done for you. And that delight in the Lord is going to empower us to live a different way. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's not a threat of your salvation. That was a unique expression that, God, you've given me your Holy Spirit so that my life can have purpose and meaning. So, God, please work this heart change in me so that the calling on my life can be all that you intend it to be in the power that you want to give it to to me for. And then it closes with repentance is ultimately to be a blessing to other people. You know, you know what the best Mother's Day gifts, guys and kids, you know what the, one of the best Mother's Day gifts you could give mom today? Repentance. If there are just some things that you've been playing the I'm sorry game, but you've never let the Lord go deeper into your heart, You've never been cut to the core to realize I keep sinning against the God who perfectly loves me. I've proven again and again, I will, I'm not a good guy who makes bad choices. Lord, change me at the heart level. Tell your wife that. Tell your mom that. At times I've said ugly things to Jan. And, and, you know, so often I would say, oh, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Liar, liar, pants on fire. I meant it when I said it. And I confessed that to her. That's not the way I live regularly. But right then, winning that argument was more important than anything else to me. And so I said what I said to win the fight. You know what? You might kind of go, wow, did Jan throw something at you? Or what? No, 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 she didn't. She actually saw that God was working repentance in her husband because God was showing me where this was coming from and that, God, that I needed to, a heart change. And you see what happens is it works outward. He says, then, you know, Lord, as you do this in me, I want to teach transgressors your ways. I I want sinners to return to you. The mercy I've received, I want to represent in, in my repentance. We bring that good news of mercy and forgiveness to others. That's one of the fruits of being repentant people. Repentance results in worship. Repentance results in humble hearts. And you can see a broken and contrite heart. The Lord won't turn away. Could you stand with me this morning? Alan, would you want to come? I don't, oh, there you are, my buddy. Yeah, would you want to come? And
I'm just, before Alan would sing, I'm just going to ask us just to take a moment of quiet and just turn to the Lord and say, Lord, where have I confessed sin but not truly been repentant of it? Where have I resisted repentance? Where, where have I acknowledged that I make mistakes but I'm not turning to you for a changed heart? in that area of my life. And isn't it great, you guys, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, we're not going to find a frustrated, angry God looking at us. You're going to find a God who loves passionately to pour out his mercy upon us today to give us all that we need to change and be restored and have renewed joy and empowerment for ministry and mission.